Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Thinking Well. I'm Kyle. And I'm Tom. Gotta say, that intro music gets me pumped up, Tom. I know, right? It's just... Every time. It's like, it's time. It's time. It was a, it was a good choice, for sure. Well, um, I think we probably should just jump right in here. I, I wanted to um, take some time to c- kind of clarify and put some punctuation on uh, something that we mentioned last week surrounding what Christ did uh, in the three days that his body was in the tomb. Um, I did a little more research on it, and it's pretty ambiguous, right? There's not really a, a passage anywhere or really any, any teachings that tell you black and white what happened. So what I was referring to was in 1 Peter 3, um, the, the passage refers to him uh, liberating the spirits and um, uh, you know, other places in the Bible, it's, it's referred to as the fallen angels when you see that word. Um, that's the, the translation there. So some biblical scholars think that part of that uh, time that his, you know, his spirit was doing things, right? Because his, his body was in, in the tomb, but his spirit was at work doing things. Um, it, there is a, an opinion that says that he went down to Shell, right? Um, which is probably, probably prompts more questions for our listeners than <laughs> answers, but yeah. we will get to that. We'll get to that. Um, just think uh, holding place. And um, the idea, and, and, and honestly, this is a great time to put this disclaimer out there. It's ambiguous for a reason. I think that for that's sure. intentional. I think that when you find things like that in the Bible, I wouldn't scoff at it and say, well, okay, why didn't God explain this better? Why did he leave this up to the imagination? Or why didn't he reveal this to us more? And I think that was on purpose. I think that um, there, there are places in the scripture where that is present. And for me, what I've come to realize is we don't need to know all the answers. Well, if we knew all the answers, what would we need a God that had all the answers for? Right. Yeah. Yeah, we don't need to know all the answers. And I I think that is one of the tactics that God uses to draw his people closer to him. Absolutely. The mystery of who God is and the works that he does, you know? And I think that includes what Christ did in the three days. But um, so that's what I was alluding to, right? There's suggestion that he went down there, liberate, liberated the captives. Um, and, you know, other than that, we know he was in paradise with the thief that was on the cross. But um, that's kind of where I was coming from on that. So it, it is really interesting because specifically the verse that you're referencing, right? You're talking about First Peter 3, and it starts in verse 18, and he's talking about Christ. And he specifically says, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins for the just the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And verse 19 is what you're keying off of. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering, God, uh, long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. So when you talk about that, it starts bringing a little bit of context to... Um, some of the things that were happening in the days of Noah, where it says the sons of God and the daughters of the earth or the daughters of men, right? Um, We won't get into that discussion, but 
it is really interesting that it, it's, it says there that he did go and preach to the spirits in prison. And I, what you were kind of bringing out last time, which I really thought um, sparked a lot of thought, is he went down there and kind of declared victory. Because this is a place where you've got hell, not hell, not the hell that as we would consider it hell, but like you said, shale was on one side, right? And then you've got this rift. When you talk about the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus was on the other side of the rift. And this is where the Old Testament saints were kind of hanging out until the death of Christ. Well, why? Because the sins of sacrifices didn't cover the sins of the people. They wouldn't have been able to be in God's presence. The, the sacrifices was symbolic. And it, their obedience and their belief in God was, for, was given to them for righteousness. But the actual final debt had not been paid. So when then, if you, if you go by that and you think about that kind of thing, and again, folks, like Kyle said, it's very ambiguous. We don't really know. We don't have to know. We're kind of going off of uh, a lot of contextual references in the Bible about how things were set up. So please don't take this as doctrine. But it is super interesting that he went down and did he stand on the edge of the rift? And when he was preaching, did he, did he preach across the rift to the demons and be like, hey, I know you think you had this thing in the bag. Mm, you were wrong. Right. Well, yeah, the imagery of it, right, is what's so compelling to me. It, uh, like we were saying, right, it's ambiguous. I don't think our small human brains can, I don't think we can physically comprehend what some of this means. I think that's on purpose. But some of the imagery that it suggests is insane, right? It's, it's yeah. awesome, right? And it's, um, I don't think there's anything wrong in, in thinking about it and saying, wow, like that could have happened. How great of an experience would that have been for the captives? What, what, a, what a great experience that would have been to just see Christ proclaim victory over death to the very people who thought that, who embody death and who thought that, they won. Yeah. So right. I, putting that image in your mind, right? I totally, I totally see how that's like super interesting. And it's something that you could just sit for hours and think about like just how cool, because for, for Christ, it wasn't, it wasn't a gloating thing. It was definitely a pride thing, but it was righteous pride. He had accomplished exactly what he came to do. Right. It was it's justice. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a pride settled in justice, the ultimate yeah. justice of, of good and evil. And I think it's amazing, right? And again, I don't think there's anything wrong in, you know, reading these things that are ambiguous in the Bible and that we honestly just, we kind of have to shrug our shoulders and say, we won't know until we get there. And I can ask God myself what yeah. this meant. And as long as we're not going against the Bible right. expressly as we're kind of thinking about these things, then y'all... God gave us imaginations for a reason, but the real answers we'll get one day. Yeah, that's definitely something I want to ask. No doubt. Well, I definitely wanted to button that up because I can realize maybe some more questions were presented than answers. But <laughs> um, 
so I guess on this episode, Tom, we kind of wanted to go through a couple of like truth nuggets is what we're calling them. Again, still waiting for that brand deal with Chick-fil-A <laughs> segments. Um, I think we're going to look at dressing up in church, you know, what you wear to church and why it matters and, or why it doesn't matter. Order of service. Why do different uh, denominations, religions do things a certain way? Why as we as Baptists do our services uh, pretty much all the same way? Every Baptist church I've been to, it's been pretty similar. And where does that come from, right? And kind of, you know, answer some questions around that. Like, you know, what does the Bible say about it? Or what, is it, what does it, doesn't it say about it? Yeah. It's really interesting sometimes when you talk to people about, the, you know, why do we do the order of service that way? Well, that's what we've always done. But why? We've never seen it done any other way. It's really interesting. One time I had the opportunity to preach and I actually kind of addressed this specifically, just some different traditions and, and stuff uh, of that nature. And I started the service with the invitation. Bold move. And then from the invitation, I went to the message. And then we sang three songs at the end of the message before we left. I like that. Now, now was there anything wrong with that? Well, again, the beauty of being an independent Baptist is that each one of our churches operate independently. So if one of those independent Baptist churches wanted to do their church like that all the time, they could. No problems with that at all. But it was, it felt super strange, even to me. And I knew I had a reason for doing it, but it was still a little unsettling for no reason at all. Right. Well, other, than, other than it was different. Right. You're just going against just, I mean, hundreds of years, right, of yeah. tradition. Um. And it's, you know, something we talked about a few months ago in one of our, our men's uh, Bible studies one night. And uh, I honestly hadn't even really given it much thought, Tom. It was just something that I assumed was done for a reason, right? I, I was, you know, I was sure that we did it for just continuity or something. It made sense some way, right? Well, and but that... You brought up the good point there where I, I often wonder if God's people in God's churches, if they would respond better to God's word being preached and the altar call. Cause I, I believe that every time the word is preached, you are prompted with a decision, right? There's no way to escape it, right? You either going to move closer to God or you're going to move further to God. That's it. That's all. That's your, that's your decision. Yeah. And I often wonder if, you know, starting with an invitation, right? Giving people a chance to get right and settle things with God before they ingest new material, right, of God's word from a preacher, I wonder if that wouldn't be beneficial. Well, and that's one of the things we discussed then, right, is when you're coming to church, it doesn't matter what day of the week it is, whether it's Sunday morning, whether your church does Sunday evening or Sunday afternoon, if you leave church for any reason and have to come back, man, on a Wednesday night, on a Wednesday night, you're coming from potentially a hard day at, uh, at work potentially a rough day at the house. And whether it be father or mother that's at the house with the kids throughout that day, you, you dealt with the kids that day. Or you dealt with 
you know, being alone in the house that day. And when you, when we're alone, sometimes all these thoughts can enter into our minds. And when we, by the time we get to church, it takes a worship song, the first or second prayer, and we're not even ready to really hear the word until halfway through the pastor's sermon, we're finally getting on board with where the Holy Spirit is leading us. And I, I agree. W- would there be a benefit to having that invitation time at the beginning? And instead of, hey, now that you've heard the word, let's get some stuff taken care of in your life so that you can go apply it, preparing our hearts to hear the word. And then after we've heard the word, we, we can end with some music so that we're just joyous that we've heard the word. Uh, it's super interesting. I just, I don't know if we, as, as Christians, as Baptists, would ever get to a point where that would be a common practice. And does it need to be? It doesn't need to be, but I don't think there's anything wrong with every now and then kind of plugging that into a service. Well, I think, I think that's the key thing, right? It's, there's nothing wrong with traditionally how services are ran, right? Like, you know, a few songs you know, prayer, offering, announcements, or whatever the church does, and then another song, preacher gets up and preaches, and then, you know, an invitation, right? That's majority how a lot of Baptist churches operate. There's nothing wrong with that, and I don't think there's anything wrong with kind of flipping it on his head and, and doing it kind of backwards, right? All I'm doing is maybe suggesting maybe, 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 maybe God's people would could benefit, right, from getting on their face first, right? Getting it, getting right, saying, hey, God, hey, I had a rough day. The kids screaming at me all day, and honestly, I didn't want to come today, but I needed this. Take this from me. Open my heart. And then hear preaching. And then, you know, like you said, right, I like the idea of finishing on those songs as like a triumphant, like refreshed, you know, you heard the word, go make a difference, live like Christ. I, I, you know, not saying there's one better than the other, but, you know, the second one feels, feels great to me. Sounds great. I would be interested to see what kind of change would take place in a church, if any at all, if a church were to try something like that for a month. I'd be really curious to see. And, you know, one of these days, um, if the Lord tarries and he so wills it, you know, maybe I'll get a chance to try that out uh, somewhere. Um, maybe we'll get a chance to try it out here at Lake Worth uh, one of these days. But it's, it's something that's been really interesting to me just as contemplating it. Because you're right. Um, actually, the, the order of service in a typical Baptist church is going to be the opening address, right? Music, prayer. Welcome, music, prayer, let's pass the plate, music, prayer, message, invitation, and then a benediction, which is just really a prayer that launches us out afterwards. I think people would be really surprised that not all services for all time since Christ in the New Testament have gone that way. I think we'd be really surprised to find out that the early church probably conducted their services more like you would see in a synagogue of the time. Now, not exactly that way, because one of the things that 
the Christian Jews were trying to change in themselves was this adherence to tradition. But man, a, a, a synagogue service on a Sabbath would go on for a minute. I mean, they would start with the, the benediction one, which, is a, which was kind of a prayer about like history and how great God has been to their ancestors. And each, each service, they would select this member chosen from the congregation to preside over the worship for that day. Now, of course, it was going to be someone who was in good standing in a position with the synagogue and, and things like that. But that person was kind of the MC for the day. And they would do the first benediction, the second benediction, and then they would all recite the Shema, which if you don't know what the Shema is, it's pretty simple. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. That's out of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. And they do this, and then it'd be a, a eulogy, and a eulogy was just a speech of praise. Somebody would stand up and they'd praise God, and there'd be two of those. And then there'd be this response time where the people in the congregation could respond to the praise that was happening. And it just, it continues to go. It's like eulogy, prayer, eulogy, congregational praise, eulogy. Then they read the law. Seven different appointed people in the congregation would read the law out loud. And then they'd read the prophets, and one person would be appointed to read the prophets. And then they'd have a sermon, but the sermon was delivered by a member of the congregation. It's definitely going past noon. I know, right? For sure. (laughs) And then they would have the closing benediction, the prayer at the end. So really the only thing that we do the same, if the early church kind of followed loosely that type of pattern, was prayer, prayer prayer, preach, prayer. They didn't sing any music. I think it's super interesting that as you see Christ coming out of the Lord's Supper, there's a hymn in there, right? So he's setting precedent for the New Testament church. I did always think that was interesting. Yeah. Because when we observe it, we do it about twice a year here Mm -hmm. at our church. Uh, And I'm sure we'll tackle this in a different Truth Nugget segment. But we, we always close with a hymn. Mm-hmm. It's like the one time that, that I can think of a year, in a year that we do that. And it's super interesting. I, I have looked at that. Maybe that's, why did, why did Christ do that instead of, you know, dismissing quietly in prayer? Or, you know, why was that included? And I think it was important. I, th- I think yeah. it's because it set a precedent for a new way of doing things. A, a new church, the church. I think that's why I was there. Yeah, and I love how he threw that in at the end. They just kind of left towards the garden with a song. Um, and when you, so, so, I mean, how we do church today looked nothing like that. And then you don't really see like hymns and stuff being, now we know that they sang psalms to each other and the Bible specifically says, uh, Paul says multiple times, sing to each other and edify each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, so we know that they did it in the early church, but I, I think we would be hard pressed to prove out that the order of service that we use today is something that has stood, I'm doing air quotes, stood the test of time. 
I, I think it's a pretty recent thing. And I actually, I firmly believe that it's as recent as the Methodist church because folks, this is directly from the Methodist church handbook. And I'm not going to read all of this, but you tell me if this sounds familiar. Again, Methodist Church Order Handbook. And Methodists, right, they get that name because there was a method to their worship. Right. Yeah. Gathering. The people come together, whether through amplified music or a bell. The next thing is greeting and hymn. The next thing is opening prayer and praise. And then the next thing is the, the proclamation of response. So this is followed, this starts with a prayer for illumination. Like, we're about to open your word. Let us be fed by your word. And it even says, this prayer is followed by another hymn in their instructions. And then it says, before the reading of the word with a subsequent sermon, you could interject an additional prayer, and then the sermon, and then the response. Gosh, that sounds really familiar. Well, that's exactly what we do here. <laughs> I know, right? But, but you, you go out and you talk to other Baptists, right? And Well, that's, that's how Baptists have done it for whatever time. Well, actually, that's how Methodists started doing it, and we adopted it because... To Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 14.40, let all things be done decently and in order. Christian liberty. As long as it's in order, it's okay to follow that pattern. Well, I think it works. Absolutely. Right? It's, it's you know, we, we spoke kind of not against it, but we offered another solution, right, when we first started talking about it, but there's nothing wrong with the way that we do it. No. I think it, it's very cohesive. I think it works very well. You know, is it wrong to maybe try to do things the other way, or is it wrong as Baptists, you know, that we historically took that from Methodists, you know? I don't, I don't think so, right? No. We, now, Baptists and Methodists definitely disagree on some fundamental things order of service is not one of them doesn't affect you know salvation if anything i think it, it works well with the order sure. of service and how to present and, and like you said do things orderly and excellence right and i think that's one of the reasons why it's become so widely adopted right because it makes sense it makes sense we should have prayer and open and public prayer when we meet as a congregation that, that's necessary. We need, to, we need to hear other people pray. We need to learn how to pray in public. Uh, we can't just always worship God and have conversations with God in private. We need to be able to do that in a congregational setting. And that's, that's really important about how usually when you're in a church, there's always someone different. One of the men in the church is asked to pray. It's never the same person over and over again. Sometimes by happenstance, it feels like it's the same person over and over again. Um, but those kind of things are important. And I think how we use music today is kind of that easing into that mode of worship 
to where we're prepared for the worship of the reading of the word. Um, I don't hate it. I don't have really any feelings either way about it. I just don't want us to be locked into tradition just because we've always done it that way. Right. Right. It's, I think a lot of Baptists, a lot of churchgoers don't even know this. They don't know that it, that this formula, right, this outline came from the Methodist Church, right? I don't, I don't think a lot of people know this. And really, I, I think that if people knew the history behind it and, you know, understood that it doesn't really matter, right, but that maybe they would be open to, hey, let's just try it this way for a month, I could definitely see that happening here. And I, I think that, again, it could be beneficial. And I think it's funny too sometimes because we do the the stand and sit, the stand and sit, right? Boy, if you have somebody hold and stand for the second song and not sit for the second song, all is mass lost, riots. Right? All is lost. Mass riots. And it's funny because um, as a as a the song leader up at up in Holtz Prairie in Southern Illinois, where we where we were for a time, I would do stuff like that like once every month i'd not pause for prayer between the first and the second song i'd just go right into the second song and sometimes like i wouldn't do the welcome between the two songs i'd do the welcome after the third third song um and it was it was funny to see people's reactions because you get in a habit of things right and this is nothing against my holds prairie people i love y'all but they, they you get into this habit right and when you kind of throw it off and they're in and we're in this thing where Oh, it's time to go shake hands. You, you'll see people like you're not getting ready to shake hands, but they know that this is usually the time. So like they're putting the songbooks down if they're holding them and they're starting to move and you just start into another song. It's total chaos and meltdown <laughs> in the congregation. Good time. Good time. Sorry, y'all. That was, that was, that was very mean of me. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, you know, just a little like, a little look right into like why do we do what we do right and that's a lot of i think where a lot of this comes from right going back to the first episode you have to be able to identify what you do and why you do it and i think why we do it in this order tom is i think it just it one it works yeah doesn't take away anything from scripture and it's not broken so why fix it i think that's kind of why we do it right sure and you know, if your church doesn't follow that pattern, awesome. You're an independent Baptist. You don't follow that pattern. That's what we're supposed to be doing, coming up with what works for our church. And I'm because if you go to a church service in Germany, you'll probably see something pretty similar. But if you go to a church service in Africa, it might be completely different. I mean, I've never personally been in a church service in Africa, but I've seen pictures of church services in Africa, and it's not the same as how we do church services. God still gets the glory. God is still worshipped, but it's just not the same as we do. And you look at other places, there are people that do different things, so we shouldn't be shocked when that happens, and we definitely shouldn't judge for it. Because I would... I would never judge somebody for following the the Methodist method of service, right? 
And we shouldn't judge someone for not following that either. It's okay to do either one. Right. I mean, what's the main objective, right, in a corporate worship service? I kind of gave the answer away, but to worship Christ, right? Yep. That's it. The whole point is to gather with other believers, edify each other while worshiping the risen Savior, and leave changed, and leave becoming closer in your walk with Christ. As long as that's happening, it doesn't matter what order you do in a service. Absolutely. I think this is a, a good segue. It doesn't matter what you're wearing in a service. Oh. Right? It yep. doesn't matter what songs you sing, as long as they're scriptural, biblical, give honor and respect in our real praise and worship songs. Absolutely. For the for the dressing up thing. Tuxedo every Sunday. Every Sunday. Every Sunday. And Wednesday. Got to. It, I mean. I'm wearing one now. Kyle, Tom. if you come to the church building at all and you're not at least wearing a tie. I'm sorry, y'all. That's coming off really bad. <laughs> but, <laughs> Recognize but, the sarcasm. But seriously, um, it's just, it, it's a little amusing to me sometimes. And not because I see anything wrong with it, but I used to see something wrong with it. Uh, I would, I, it, there was a point in time in my life where I wouldn't show up at church on a Sunday morning without wearing a suit and tie. Um, and then I kind of studied it out a little bit and it's, it's really interesting because I think when you look at the Bible, I find it very difficult to believe that our Lord and Savior requested suit and tie or priestly robes every time he got together to preach to somebody. I have a difficult time finding that anywhere. Well, I think the contrary is actually true. Right? I mean, during Jesus' ministry on earth, I mean, I don't know what the, the popular attire, a tunic or whatever, a dirty tunic. He slept outside. They slept in the wilderness. Right? His, him and his disciples, they went out and preached the gospel. They weren't wearing suit and ties. They weren't wearing priestly robes. Right? I mean, they, they were really probably the one or two outfits they had that were dirty. That's it. Well, and it's, it's funny that you say one or two outfits because when you look uh, historically in medieval times, common folk, there was in, in medieval times, it was either, you either had money or you didn't. There was no middle class. You were royalty, you were rich, or you were a peasant or a plebe. And that was it. And the peasants and the people of the time, they had two sets of clothes. They had the clothes that they worked in that very rarely got washed. And so if they're working in agriculture, they're going to smell like corn mash or wheat mash. Mm, corn or mash. All kinds of dirty things all the time. And if they were a, a farmer who happened to have sheep or pigs or cows, they were, that's what their clothes were going to smell like all the time. Their second set of clothes was the stuff that they put on to go into town to trade 
And the reason why they had a second set of clothes is just so that people would, could be around them without being put off by the stench. Right. Yeah. I think that's true, right? I mean, I think historically, when you look, you know, ancient times, biblical times, dark ages, middle ages, people didn't have many, many clothes that they could set aside, right? It's just not the way culture worked back then. And, you know, I think you probably have the statistics on this, but I think, I mean, the whole dressing up for church, putting a suit and tie on, I think that's pretty recent. I mean, the last it, few hundred years. It, it is. It is very recent. So people actually didn't. And sorry, y'all, I'm, I'm like, I'm like a factoid nerd. So people didn't actually start dressing up for church until clothing like that became readily available for them. And that really didn't happen until uh, the, the spinning Jenny was invented in 1764. Wrap your minds around that. 1764. So what? 260 years? Right. If that's the case, and because they could then mass produce, cl- produce clothing, right? Common people beca- began dressing up. Before then, you only dressed up if you had the money to. And now common people were able to go out and buy clothing that was not handmade every single time. It's being kind of mass produced. And so it becomes affordable to them. Well, now they're dressing up so that they can imply that they have riches. And it it becomes this mindset of people that throughout the 18th and the 19th century, they there was actually Christian groups that resisted people dressing up for church. Baptists and Methodists being the two primary opposers to people dressing up for church. Because in their mind, it was let your dress be cheap as well as plain because that's how you served God was in simplicity. Methodists and Baptists, they were, they were the ones that were condemning elaborate clothing and hairstyles. Uh, preachers like, I mean, Charles Finney and Peter Cartwright, they praised people who wore plain dress and things like that. But see this growing middle class, now that people could afford all these fancy clothes, then they wanted nicer homes because those became more affordable. And because they wanted nicer homes, when they went to church, they wanted nicer churches too. So now you're in these nice churches with the nice clothes, and all of a sudden, this is probably my favorite little factoid of all of it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this. Uh, children's religious periodicals like the American Sunday School Union's Youth's Friends in the 1840s began introducing articles on manner and dress together with moral instruction. They began to fuse with virtue and morality among Christ- groups of Christians impeccable manners and nice clothing. And here's where we get our environment for dressing up for church. A North Carolina Presbyterian said, a church-going people are a dress-loving people. What I find super interesting about that 
is if you look in 1 Timothy 2, 8 and 10, there's this little bitty passage. In verse 8, Paul says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, before I get into the apparel piece, Kyle, what did that say? Well, not uh, that it should matter, right? Not that, uh, you know, to not get fixated, right, on what we're wearing to church. I think it's super interesting that it says men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Oh. What? What is what is that? Yeah, I missed that, Tom, the first time you said it. Paul's, Paul's preference was that men pray how? With their hands up. Oh. Little, little sidebar. Baptist brethren and sisters. This was Paul's preference. Okay. I, I can't, I can't stay there. We won't stay there. So I, all I will say to that is that if my hand goes up in worship, that's how Paul liked it. Right. I mean, we don't have to stay here long. I, I think it is important to say that I think there's a lot of just stigma around, especially in Baptist, you know, and as a Baptist, I look at a lot of it and I'm just kind of confused to why Traditionally, what we do isn't what we find in the Bible as far as praise and worship. And it is a little frustrating, right? Because I feel like it's definitely present in our church where, I mean, people get into the worship and you can tell they're, they're worshiping, but they're, they're scared. They're scared of how it might be perceived if you raise a hand or, you know, if you say hallelujah or something, right? Like it's... Yeah. It, it's it, they they think it's going to be frowned upon, and I I think that's a that's a terrible place to be. I think like you know like I think the word preaches exactly opposite of that. The freedom that you have in Christ, like you should be overjoyed, you should be raising your hand. And Tom, I mean, I, I'm going to say it, you should be dancing, right? Like <gasps> I know this is the glory of God we're talking about. Agreed. A hundred percent. And I read this one time, somebody said this, and I can't remember who it was, but I could not agree more with them. We have let the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement rob us of our rightful worship. Because there are these things that became associated with that movement because they were misappropriating Christian expressions of worship. And we, we, we allowed them to do it. And so we stopped doing it so that we weren't associated with it. But I, I agree, Kyle. I think that, think that sometimes our worship could be enriched by raising both hands. Oh, for it, sure. Sway back and forth when you're singing a worship song. Move your feet a little bit when you're singing a worship song. I, sometimes when we're leading worship, I, I do this thing that uh, my daughter calls um, 
happy, happy toes or something like that. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll be singing and it'll come to a really good part of the song and I'll kind of like lift up on my toes and kind of bounce a little bit. Y'all, it takes everything I have to not just full out, just kind of do a little happy dance when that kind of stuff is happening. Oh, I, I completely understand that feeling. There's, there's times where, and I, I'm behind the drum kit, I play drums, which is another topic that we're touching so much tonight, folks. We'll get, we'll get to we'll that get to in it. another episode. We'll get to it in another episode, but there's times where certain songs will just hit me harder than others. It's hard. It's it's physically hard for me to get through moving my hands and my feet in certain ways because I'm just I'm just there. I'm caught up. Right. And again, that's you know I, I feel like when you start witnessing that or seeing that or feeling that for yourself, that's a pretty good indication that you're moving in the right direction. But I definitely get it. Right. It's like you you feel the Holy Spirit working in you, right. And that's the point of the worship service that you're participating in. But again, I feel like there's some weird dogma about just what's going on and what we're, what we're allowed to do in a church and what we're not allowed to do. You know, you're, you're, we're going to throw you out of the church if you move too much during a worship service. Like, no, it's that, that, that hurts the gospel. Really, that hurts the gospel. A hundred. Yeah, that's, that's such a good point that it, it hurts the gospel. Listen, because. Man, if we can't get excited to where we just kind of are jumping out of our skin excited, knowing that Christ loved us enough to die for us and save us from the wretched people that we are, when you get to that point, things like whether or not somebody wore shorts to church that day just doesn't seem to matter. What I don't know. Is wearing shorts to church my preference? I think there was a time in my life where I would have been like, oh, I would never wear shorts to church. I've worn shorts to a Wednesday night service multiple times. It's hot in Texas, y'all. I will say this, though. I think this is an important time to throw a little caveat in there and say I, I think that there are, there's a line you have to be careful with and all of these things, right? There is a line where you can cross over and sometimes it's not super defined. It's some of these lines are kind of gray and fuzzy. You have to be careful, but there, there are times where, you, you know, some things you can do during a worship service or where can be distracting, right? Yeah. And I think it's important, important time in the discussion to bring up, Hey, just be careful, right? That you have absolute freedom within the gospel, within Christianity. But there are things that you can do that will distract your feather, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So for their sake, right? That's, I mean, that's 1 Corinthians, right? Mm-hmm. For, for, for their sake, be careful. Really search the scriptures, pray about it. But shorts on a Wednesday night, no one cares. They shouldn't care, right? Now, personally, and this is a preference, this is one of my convictions, I, I probably wouldn't wear shorts on a Sunday morning, right? Because I, I, although I don't think historically there's any, you know, tr- not truth, but any like weight to it, right? 
I do like the idea of dressing somewhat a, l- a little nicer on a Sunday morning for the honor righteousness of Christ. I feel like there is something to that. Now, people get carried away with it. You will hardly see me in a tie, maybe on Easter and maybe on the Christmas service, maybe. I wear, I wear suit jackets every once in a while, not because I, I think I'm better than other people or somehow my, my church experience will be lifted up and I'll just have a better Sunday than everybody else. <laughs> I, I like it because I like wearing jackets sometimes, right? That's why, yeah. I, why I like it. Um, but for me and the way I was raised, my preference, again, not doctrine, not principle, my preference is that almost always I'll have something collared on and, you know, I wear jeans almost every Sunday or some kind of khakis or, you know, some slacks or something, right? My shirt's not even tucked in all the time. It's hardly ever tucked in, right? But I do think there's a level there in the middle, right? I'm not wearing a tank top and booty shorts to church, right? No one wants to see that. And I'm not wearing a tuxedo, but somewhere in the middle, right? Somewhere that's appropriate. Um, But I do like the distinction, right? I I usually wouldn't wear this just out and about if I'm sitting in my home office working. I'm not going to be dressed in, you know, a polo tucked into some slacks. But I think there is something to say about Sunday morning, getting your heart right before you enter God's God's house. And I think part of that, for me at least, is recognizing, hey, I'm going to put something else different on to symbolize that this is a different time, a set of place time, set of part time than the rest of my week. And I, I think a lot of people feel that way. And I, I, I agree. It's, it's okay to feel that way. Uh, again, there was a time in my life where I didn't show up at, at church on a Sunday at all without a full suit and tie and most of the time a three-piece suit. And you know why? It's not because I felt that I needed to. It's because I liked it. I've kind of, I wouldn't say grown past that, but I've, I've kind of personally gotten past that preference in my life now. And most of the time, if anybody tunes into our live stream or comes to our church, you're going to see me standing up there. I, 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 I would say with Kyle, at least a collared shirt. Um, I'll we- I wear cardigans a lot. It's just kind of the thing that I do. But my shirt is 99% of the time untucked. I'm wearing a pair of khakis or jeans, just like Kyle. And I've preached here before in that same kind of outfit. And those things are okay. Uh, our, our pastor has even said before that he doesn't need to wear a suit and tie on Sunday. He does it because he likes to. Right. Well, and, and I think you bring up a good point, right? Someone like Zach, our pastor, or even us two, right? We're leaders. We're, we're worship leaders, right? And I think there is something to say with people in positions of leadership in the church that maybe, and again, not necessary, doesn't take away from the service or the gospel in any way. But I think there is a certain level of respect to the church and, you know, the people of the church, uh, you know, to maybe come somewhere in the middle right there, right? I mean, I think that, um, I think Zach does that well, right? He's kind of, he's always wearing kind of a suit. Most Sundays he has a tie on. Again, I don't think it's because he has to, right? He's still going to preach a great message. People can still get saved if he's not wearing a tie or a suit. We can still lead worship effectively 
through the Holy Spirit by God's grace, if we're not wearing suit jackets and ties, right? That's not the point, right? We, we, we spoke about it, I think, every, every podcast up to this point. I want to say it again. It is a preference, right? It does not affect the gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ in any way, the doctrine of what we believe in this church and the gospel. I wouldn't even say it's a principle thing. It may be, mm-hmm. maybe. I, I, you might be able to get me there. But really, it's, it's a preference. And, and you can't, brothers and sisters, you, you can't get hung up on preferences. It's, it's so fatal. It is so fatal. If I were to get hung up on preferences, back to that verse, in verse 9, what Paul finished with was, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Paul was saying, y'all shouldn't get all dolled up and dressed up for church the same way you used to get all dolled up and dressed up when you went and worshipped idols. Now, for this particular instance, what Paul's trying to get them to see is that worshiping Christ as God is not the same as worshiping your idols. So while you would do all these things to draw attention to yourself when you were worshiping that idol, this is not how you worship God. You don't draw attention to yourself. And that's why I wouldn't stand up and be aiding and leading worship on a Sunday morning with a wanna taco about Jesus shirt on, right? But because Wednesday for sure, though. That, right. <laughs> That would draw attention away from what we're trying to do and draw attention to me. Right. That's the whole point, right? Yeah. You, you don't want to be a distraction. You don't want to point towards yourself, especially like in our position or Zach's position. We're just conduits, right? We're just pointing in a direction saying, hey, we're, we're guiding, but we, it doesn't matter what we're wearing. It doesn't matter what we are doing. You know, the talents that we have, the way that we're able to do things at this church, they're all given to the person that we're pointing back up to. That's where that stuff comes from. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's nothing wrong with wearing a suit and tie to church. I think, I think men look good in suit and ties. I think historically it's, it's a very presentable way to dress yourself. Women, I think dresses, right? As long as they're appropriate length and not, you know, again, inappropriate and drawing attention where you don't need attention. I think that very presentable way to, you know, dress, especially the church. Yeah. But you cannot be doing it because you want to be lifted up. You're, you're looking at it wrong if that's what you're doing. Right. And I, I think that, I think we definitely see that in churches today. Right. And not to harbor too much on the women's side of it. I'm, I'm not a woman. Tom, I don't think you're a woman. No, I, I, Definitely, I'm not a woman. Okay, I just wanted to put that to rest. Um, no, I'm just kidding. If, if I am, I have a very impressive beard for a woman. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say, yeah, your beard is better than mine. Maybe I'm the woman. I don't know. But um, what what Paul is saying here is, it's not that women can't wear their hair braided or they can't wear this kind of jewelry to church, right? It, don't don't take it literally. You have to take it in the context of he's telling them, "Hey, you used to dress up like this." to worship false gods. Don't, don't do that while you're worshiping the God. Yeah. The real God. So, again, there's middle ground, right? There's middle ground where it's appropriate, it's godly, 
You're not distracting anybody for men and women. And I think modesty is a big part of that, right? You're absolutely right. And he does specifically say in modest apparel. And I think that's important. And you're right. I think we do harp on women a lot. But listen, guys, modest apparel. There, there's, this old, there's this old saying, if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. And that applies to these types of this. What Paul is giving us right here is a principle. Dress in modest apparel. Don't dress the same way you would dress if you were going out to do things that didn't have to do with God. Wear something that's decent. And guys, for us, that means, you know what? You may look good in those skinny jeans, but maybe they're just not appropriate for a Sunday morning because maybe they're too tight. And you can't stand there and complain about somebody wearing a spaghetti strap dress and be having the same kind of problem with what you're wearing. So it's modesty. And listen, modesty is a universal concept. You can, we can sit around and say, well, to you, modest may be different than what my modest is. I think one of the things that Kyle called out very adequately was a distraction. Right. If it's a distraction, then it's not modest. And it doesn't matter if it's a revealing modesty or if it's any kind of modesty at all. If it's a distraction, then you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't wear it. And pay attention to it because you may think in your mind, well, this wouldn't be a distraction to so-and-so or this wouldn't be, this doesn't look that distracting to me. Be careful. There may be a weaker brother or sister in our church that that may be a distraction for, and now you've become a stumbling block to them. And we've got to be careful of that because we want to lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't want to cause them to fall and, and fall down. But I think it's really important that we, it's not a distraction. We, we should be pointing towards the one that we worship and not drawing any attention to ourselves. Absolutely right. It's, it's what it's all about. I mean, I said it earlier, right? We're, we're just pointing, we're worshiping upwards. That's it, right? And the last thing that we need in our churches is us getting in the way of somebody else being able to do that effectively, right? I mean, there's already, think about it this way, right? There's already powers in the spiritual realm that we can't even see that war against us daily, that don't want us to go and worship in the name of Christ. The least we can do is, is not add to that, right? Add to their efforts. People are already fighting throughout the week. People are already fighting on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday driving home from work. But people are, are fighting probably more than you would realize to get to the house of God just to try to get some relief. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that and say, hey, listen, like, just look internally for a second. Hey, is there anything I'm doing that might be a distraction for other people? And if it is, kill it. And it, that's, that's part of the sacrifice. That's part of being a Christian. That, that, that is part of it. It's not easy. But one of the greatest things you can do and be able to do is identify it and kill it. All right. I don't even, I don't even know yeah, what to tag really, on to that. Really that, was, that, that, was right? a, that was a done one. Um, no, it's been really good. Uh, 
yeah, we actually got through what we planned to get through tonight. Right. It's funny, just kind of in closing, we always, when we first started this, we were a little concerned about being able to fill, you know, 35 to 45, 55 minutes. And once we just kind of get talking, it's just, I mean, I'll look over a couple of times just to see how much time has gone by. And it's, I'm always surprised every single time. But folks, if you can learn one thing from this is the Holy Spirit's going to stir up thoughts and things within you that you're going to need to get together with another Christian and just kind of talk through them and look in your Bible and find truths in there. That's the whole goal of this podcast is to just, just get you thinking. Yeah, for sure. Every week, guys, we're, we're planning on uploading this. Uh, every episode should be live Sunday morning, 6 a.m., if I'm not mistaken, Tom. That's correct. And uh, we're going to do our best to keep it tight on a schedule. That way you guys can bet on it. It'll be Sunday morning, 6 a.m. Uh, for new content here. Uh, hopefully, in the, either next week or the week to come, a um, little bit of a teaser here. We're going to have our pastor, Zach Hatton. Uh, we're going to be talking about why the Bible. Why is it important? Why do we believe it is the moral objective standard that you must hold your life against? We're going to answer some tough questions. So look forward to that. Tune in. Look for our next episode or the one after that with Zach Hatton. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for taking this plunge with us in the thinking well. Bye, everybody. <laughs>